Take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 49, and I would direct your attention to verse 19. This text in many ways ties together uh, themes that we were considering, considering before our communion season and is especially appropriate uh, here on the backside and after the conclusion of our communion season. So we'll be Considering with the Lord's help, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 19. Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Genesis 49 is an intriguing chapter by, by any measure. I mean, here we have a solemn scene. Jacob is lying on his deathbed, and he has gathered his sons around him in order to receive the patriarchal blessing. And in the process, in this, these blessings that are, are pronounced, God provides for us promises and prophecies that are given really to the Old Testament church in the first instance, not just to these individual sons, but to the tribes that they rec- represent, which comprise, by and large, uh, the Old Testament church. And you'll remember, of course, that the names of these tribes are inscribed on the gates of the New Jerusalem, so that when we turn our attention to Revelation 21, there, uh, among others, we would find the name Gad uh, inscribed on those gates of the New Jerusalem. But here, specifically in verse 19, we have a brief verse, uh, words that are spoken to Jacob's son Gad and to the tribe that would come from him. You'll remember that Gad was born uh, to Leah's handmaid, Zilpah, and so that was his, his mother. And his name, Gad, actually means troop or, or company, if you will, the regiment of, of an army. And so the language is actually taken from his name, Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome uh, at the last. Gad is one of the the tribes that is less frequently mentioned. I mean, we we think of Judah, we think of Benjamin, we think of uh, Ephraim and Manasseh and even Issachar and Zebulun and so on. And yet we hear far less frequently of the the tribe of of Gad. They're one of the three that settled on the east side of the Jordan. So you have in the north, on the east side of the Jordan, you have half-tribe of the Manasseh, half-tribe of Manasseh. At the bottom in the south, you have Reuben, and then Gad uh, settled in the middle uh, between uh, those two. They were known as as a warrior class, if you will. Uh, They were a warrior class people, and that's evident here in our verse. Troops shall overcome him, but he shall overcome uh, at the last. But it's it's also evident uh, later on in the way in which you see all of this playing out. For example, in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, in verse 8, it says, And of the Gadites, there separated themselves unto David into the hold, to the wilderness, men of might, men of war, fit for the battle, that could handle shield and buckler, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were as swift as the rose upon the mountains. And then you go down 
it's verse 14, these were the sons of Gad, captains of the host. One of the least was over a hundred, and the greatest over a thousand. Our margin says it could also read, one that was least could resist a hundred, and the greatest a thousand. These are they that went over Jordan in the first month, when it overflown its banks, and so on, and put to flight those that were in the valley. So we see a picture of some of this. And you can appreciate the need for this because there they are on the east side of the Jordan and they're going to be interfacing with and they're going to have to really to face off with, be exposed to their neighboring enemies. You have the Moabites that are lurking there and you have the Ammonites whom they would have to uh, contend with. And so they're a, a warrior class people and the Lord gives a word uh, to them in the first instance. Here in verse 19, a word of humility, which is very suited to, to warriors, as well as a word of encouragement. So a word of humility to keep down their pride and a word of encouragement to buoy up and strengthen them uh, amidst potential uh, discouragements. But it's a word that's given for the instruction of the church at large. It's a word given not just to the Old Testament church, but given for our instruction and for uh, the people of God throughout uh, the ages. We think of how much of the language of chapter 49 has worked its ways into the phraseology of the Christian church. We'll speak about, uh, we'll speak, for example, uh, about those who are as unstable as water, right? That's language that's drawn from Reuben. Uh, we'll, we'll think about the language that's given to Naphtali, right? We have a book that was a famous book in Scottish Presbyterian history called The Hind Let Loose, based on, on that word that was, was there. We, of course, know the language with regards to the scepter not departing from Judah and so on. But this, too, here in Gad, is a word that is for the church at large, and it sets forth a principle, this principle of uh, being overcome and yet overcoming. And it's, it's seen within the life of Jacob himself. I mean, there's Jacob, and he's overcome in a sense. He's sent to flight by his brother Esau. He has to go off uh, to Laban and so on, and yet he ultimately overcomes. He rules over, over Esau. You think of, of his brother Joseph, who is overcome by his brothers and sold off into Egypt, and yet in the end, he's set over top of his brother's. And we could begin to multiply examples like this of the principle, but it is seen quintessentially in the person of our Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and exquisitely really at the cross of Calvary itself, where by, by all appearances, it would seem as if the Lord Jesus Christ himself is overcome, and yet in that very act, he is overcoming. He appears vanquished, and yet he is actually victorious. In what is taking place. And as it is with the Savior, so it is uh, with his, his people, overcome yet overcoming. And so we're going to look at this under three, three heads. First of all, we begin with this notion of overcome, of being overcome. The people of God are at times uh, overcome. The church, the Israel of God, face many, many attacks uh, in this world. And we're conscious of it. Right? We, we, we face attacks from our own native corruptions. Right? We, we begin with the enemy that is within us, the indwelling sin 
that is that is found there. The the struggles against the flesh. I mean, we have to sing over and over in the language of Psalm 65, iniquities prevail against me. Right? Iniquities prevail against me. We have that feeling of that sense, reality of being overcome. This troop, if you will, is the body of sin, as Paul describes it, within our, our, <clears throat> our own members. And so we face this. And of course, if that's not enough, we have enemies without as well. Uh, chiefly, principalities and powers, right? The devil and his host and the fiery darts, which they fill, as it were, our sky with which shower down upon us like hail, right? This is an enemy, and we at times feel ourselves um, being beaten by, by these assaults and so on. We have, we have the world at large. Uh, within that world, we have wicked men who, who also uh, align themselves against us. There are those who are persecutors of the church. There are those who are heretics. There are those who are hypocrites. Uh, within the church. There are those who, who come to, to bring harm to the Lord's people. You remember the, the expectation that Christ set when he says in Matthew 10 and verse 17, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. There appears to be in that language this notion of being overcome. You're being arrested. You're being, you're being made captive. You're being hauled against your will uh, by those who have power and arraigned, oh, they reign over you and so on. And so there's this imagery that the Lord's given to us. And there's, in the context of that, there's the experience of all of these various assaults overcome so far as to bring us uh, into discouragement at times, when indeed we feel the discouragements of, of all of these assaults. And how many psalms are there that, that describe this, that put a song in our mouth, you think, in reference to sin? Uh, Psalm 38, which perhaps you were looking at as I was on Friday, and in verse 8 it says, I am feeble and sore or extremely broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Or you think of the language of Psalm 25, which we sang recently in verse 27. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercies, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. And we can begin to say, not to cite many others. There's this sense of discouragement, this sense of distress that the Lord's people uh, at times face. And of course, uh, beyond that, the, the Lord's people to pick up on the, the broader forms of attack that I've, I've described, the Lord's people can at times be overcome so far as to be brought to death itself. Right? Lamentations 3. There's the lament of Jeremiah. Verse 53. They have cut off my life in the dungeon and cast a stone upon me. Right? Jesus warns his disciples, there are those that will put you to death and think that they do honor to God in doing so. And so there's that. And all of this is a challenge to us. It's a challenge to our courage. Right? It undermines the, the courage of the Christian in the face of, of the battle. It's a challenge to 
our faith to be exercised amidst threats and forebodings and discouragements, our hope, that confident expectation of all that the Lord has pledged to us, the patience that is necessary in the outworking of the whole of our Christian pilgrimage, these things are challenged as a consequence of all of this, of of the thought and the feeling of, of being overcome. And we, you should not be surprised, especially after a communion season, if you find that a troop comes out to assault you. And whatever shape or size or form that may take to discover a troop has risen against you in one form or another. And you think, well, why? You know, why is it that these things are allowed? Why is it that the Lord's people are subjected uh, to such assaults and challenges and difficulties? And there's several answers that we could give. Indeed, a whole sermon could be devoted to it. But you think, first of all, about the fact that, that it is the context in which God displays his divine perfections to us. You know, we, in answer to all of these questions, we should first of all begin with the Lord. We should always begin in thinking about the answers to our questions with the Lord himself. How does it relate to him? How do these circumstances relate to him? Well, they are the context in which the Lord is pleased to display to us his divine perfections. You think of how the wisdom of God is, is set forth before us, that, that in his wisdom he is able to lead us through the midst of enemies. The wisdom of God in, in, in carrying us through the midst of hostile territory. You think of, as well, his power, how his power is manifest in delivering us, in defeating our enemies, as we'll hear, in sustaining us, that we are kept by the power of God. And his power is set forth in its beauty, his faithfulness, all that he has said that he would be and all that he has said that he would do for us. He delivers on, he shows himself faithful to us to never leave us or forsake us in all of our perplexities, his goodness and the way in which his goodness is bestowed and set in bold relief against the backdrop of some of these challenges. We could go on and on, but the Lord is pleased to show his glory through this sort of context. And in doing so, we learn to trust in the Lord, right? As long as all is smooth and, and, and the seas are calm and peaceful, you know, as long as the road is clear without obstacles and pitfalls and difficulties, we can make do, we feel, wrongly, but we feel as if we can make do on our own, that we, we have strength, we have ability, we have skill, we have experience, we have wisdom, and so on and so forth, all of which is folly. We have nothing without the Lord. But in the context of battle, in the context of heavy artillery, amidst all of the smoke and cannon fire and bullets flying everywhere, the Christian has an acute sense of how desperately we need the Lord, how desperately we need to learn to trust the Lord, not to trust ourselves, or we will be wrecked, not even to trust the means as if they were ends but to actually use the means of the sacrament and the word and prayer and so on 
to bring us in the exercise of our faith to the Lord himself. Right? This is a reason why the Lord allows it. He also allows it because then it makes the victory all the more remarkable. You know, if a, if a child is, is walking down the sidewalk and you go and you, you grab them and hold them and, you know, pick them up and say, oh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm keeping you safe. Well, it's not all that remarkable. They're walking on a smooth surface, right, a flat surface. But if the child is, you know, on the edge of a cliff or, you know, hanging from a tree limb or, you know, standing next to a pool when they can't swim or whatever, and you snatch them as they're falling, in that context, pick them up and hold them and say, I've kept you. Well, then, you know, it's all the more valued by us and all the more um, important. And so in the midst of this conflict, the Lord is pleased to make the victory all the more remarkable. That, that amidst the assaults from within and the world without and the devil above and so on and so forth, that the Lord delivers his people and brings them safely to himself. That he brings them safely into their inheritance in heaven. All the praise and glory and honor belongs to him and, and his, his glory is set forth. It's set forth not only in the victory, it's set forth especially in our dependence upon him amidst the victory. All of these things magnify him. And so for these reasons and a whole host of others, the Lord is pleased to allow us to be in conditions like God where there are times that we are overcome, as it were, or seemingly overcome. But then secondly, we have yet overcoming so overcome and overcoming or but overcoming, but he shall overcome at the last. Victory is what is promised. Victory is what is prophesied. That was true for Gad, for his tribe and all that would follow. But it is true for all of God's people in, in all ages as well. We have uh, another interesting description of, of Gad in, in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Chronicles chapter 5. And if you look there at verse 18, I believe it is. Yes, beginning at verse 18, it speaks about the sons of Reuben uh, and the Gadites in the half-tribe of Manasseh. It speaks of them as valiant men uh, men able to bear the buckler, the sword, to shoot with the bow, skillful in war, and so on. They, and they made war with the Hagarites, with Jetur, and Nephesh, and Nodab. And they were helped against them, and the Hagarites were delivered into their hand, and all that were with them, for they cried to God in the battle. And he was entreated of them, because they put their trust in him. And then it speaks about how they carried away the loot, the booty, and so on and so forth. This victory is true for all of God's people, for the Israel of God, the church of God at large. How is it that, that the Lord's people overcome amidst these threats and amidst these assaults and so on? How is it that we, we overcome well, we can, we can survey what, what the Scripture says, and there are various ways in which the Bible describes this 
overcoming and the means of overcoming. One that I is a particular favorite for me is in Daniel chapter 11, where we're told that we overcome by knowing, by knowledge. Daniel 11 verse 32, where it says, and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall, shall uh, he corrupt by flatteries. But the people of God that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Those who know God, who have, a, who have an experiential and saving knowledge of him and a, a growing and deepening acquaintance with who God is, they shall be strong and do exploits. And so in this spiritual warfare that the Lord's people face, we're called to be pulling down strongholds and bringing them captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That is, it is possible because of our sight of him, our knowledge of him, our communion with him, our walking with him. Right? Having seen him in his glory and power, in his holiness and goodness and whatever else, we are able to go forth in that strength and to wage war by his grace, independence upon him. Closely related to this is the idea of overcoming through the exercise of faith. In 1 John 5, verse 5, who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. It is by faith. Right, We have in that armory that the Lord's given a shield of faith with which we quench those fiery darts of the devil. It's through the exercise of faith and, and, and more specifically faith in Christ, faith in him as the son of God, that the Lord's people are able to go, to go forward. And so you, you begin to put these things together and, you know, the... The believer has the sight of God. They recognize his ability to defend them, to protect them, that, that his love is in the midst of all these things, his goodness in leading us through them. And they exercise faith in his word. They wield that sword so that all of the temptations which have underneath them the barb of unbelief to not trust the Lord, to not be confident in what he's promised, to not walk forward in his own strength. Instead, that sword of the word wielded with faith is able to beat back the enemy and to say, no, let God be true, though all men are liars. We can depend upon him. We can follow him. We can obey him. We can, we can trust him in these things. The same is true of love, which isn't a, a virtue that we would often associate with valor or battle and so on. But it is nonetheless... It is in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. A breastplate, faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. If we love the Lord, we'll keep his commandments. Well, that gives us a clue, doesn't it? Our reciprocal love. He loves us and therefore we love him. And our greater acquaintance with his love intensifies our love for him. And it's his love that is the compelling, constraining influence on the Christian life that enables us to walk in holiness before him so that 
the temptations from within and without are rebuffed by a superior intensity of love for the Savior, loving him more than our own wants and wishes. Prayer is another one. The Lord tells his disciples that we're to watch and pray lest we enter into temptation, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayer is a means. It's, it's included there in Ephesians 6 uh, alongside the rest of the armor. And in, in many ways, it's the, we have all of the pieces of the armor and prayer is what holds all those pieces together and what, which lies behind all of, of, of those various pieces. We are to wrestle in prayer. We all think of Jacob. Jacob is doing battle with the angel of the Lord by wrestling with him in order to obtain the blessing. And we, we often associate, rightly, this notion of wrestling uh, with, with prayer. There's, there are other examples, though. A New Testament example would be Paul. Because in, in 2 Corinthians 12, that well-known passage where his power is made perfect in our weakness and you have the thorn in the flesh... We're told specifically that a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet him. And what, is, what does Paul do in his interface with that messenger of Satan who's come to buffet him? He prays three times. He's wrestling in prayer. And he receives grace in the process to bear up under it. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ Underneath all of this, more important than anything else we've said, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is part of what the Lord gives us for his defense. In Revelation 12, verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. Right here is Christ has purchased the victory that the people of God are able to enjoy by his blood. It is his blood that is able to cleanse us from all of our, our iniquities. It is his blood that secures for us the defeat of Satan so that he is placed under our feet through the blood of, of the Lamb. It's by Christ's death that he destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And then we, of course, have the sword. The word of God, the sword of the spirit. Actually, this passage in Revelation 12, verse 11, puts the two together. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. You know, this is the sword of the spirit in Ephesians chapter 6. We are to, we are to wield this word of God. That's what Jesus did when he was assaulted by the devil. The devil came and met him in the wilderness, and the devil flung all sorts of temptations, um, the strongest that he could muster. And Jesus rebuffed, with, rebuffed all of those temptations by wielding the sword of the Spirit. He quotes Scripture. He appeals to what God himself has said in his word, using the word of God. Same thing is said of young men in 1 John 2, verse 14, where it says, I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Right? It's that word of God that is abiding in them. And so there is this, 
but overcoming. And the means through which this is done is the arsenal that the Lord has given to his people. And you say, well, you know, when and where is it that we overcome? Here it says, Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. So what does this mean? You know, when, when is it that we overcome? And it's, it's true. We, you know, initially and at first we, we overcome partially, right? There are, there's, there's forward progress in the fight and then there's being beat back in our, in our experience and so on. But nevertheless, by, by the Spirit of God and by the grace of God, God's people are by degrees, if not from day to day, from stretch to stretch, battle to battle, season to season, are able to enjoy a measure of victory and of overcoming. It's gradual. You think of when these tribes are finally, you know, make it many, you know, much, much, much later than, than our text in the days of Joshua, when they come to the land, they conquer that land little by little, one city at a time, one portion at a time, one allotment at a time. There is something gradual in it. There's also something very mysterious in it, isn't there? Mysterious in many ways. One, one example of how it's mysterious is that it is in the midst of stumbling. It's in the midst of struggles that the Lord actually is working his victory. Right? In the midst of those, those struggles, we're actually being made more watchful. In the midst of those struggles, we are actually humbled, which is a victory, under the hand of God. And the Lord gives more grace to those that are humble. It's actually in the midst of all of that that the Lord quickens the courage of his people. But it is a victory that is at last. And that means it's a victory that is absolutely certain. You go to places like 1 Corinthians 15, chapter on the resurrection, where it says earlier in verse 27, for he hath put all things under his, that is Christ's feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he, that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And so the point is that, that, that all will be put under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall reign as we, as we sing in the Psalms. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make all thine enemies thy, thy footstool. The Lord is pleased to do this for, for there to be gradual victory under his hand. We were looking at Deuteronomy 32 at the table. And if you look later on in that chapter, um, at verse 36, for the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. Right? The Lord coming to his people in the midst of their extremities. But ultimately, of course, the final victory for the Lord's people does come at the last, as this passage says. It comes at death when the believer and sin are forever separated. The souls of believers are made perfect in holiness and brought into the presence of God. But of course, it's made 
the full victory is displayed at the resurrection. When that last enemy is swallowed up in victory, as Paul says. The last enemy swallowed up in victory. And where resurrected bodies, perfected souls, whole people are forever with the Lord. Well, why is this the case? Why is it that the Lord's people do indeed overcome and overcome at the last? The answer is because the Lord Jesus Christ has triumphed. It's because he's secured the victory. The, the captain of the Lord's host has gone before us and he has trounced every enemy. He's defeated them, gutted them, humiliated them decimated them. The Lord Jesus Christ has triumphed. And for that reason, all who are in union with him, all who are his, will most certainly triumph and will be raised on the last day as kings and priests unto their God. He is the captain who is in the midst of us. He's the captain who follows behind us. He's the captain who leads us every step of the way through this earthly sojourn through all of the battles and wars that are fought in this world. It's that captain who's triumphed, who secures us and keeps us by his, his power. But it's a victory because all of our enemies are his enemies. Every true enemy of the people of God are actually Christ's enemies. And because he is king, Therefore, he will defeat, he will defend us and defeat all of his and our enemies. We sing psalms like Psalm 68, verse 1, Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him as smoke is driven away, and so on. This is the battle songs of, of the Lord's own people. Our enemies are his enemies. You think of um, there's a place just after the law in Exodus, after the, the Ten Commandments, chapter 23, where it says in verse 22, But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine enemies adversaries. There's victory because our enemies are Christ's enemies. There's victory because Christ's honor is all wrapped up in our triumph, in our overcoming. His own honor and his own glory is wrapped up in the victories that we enjoy. For that reason, there will be victory. And of course, there's victory always because there are more that are for us than there are that are for them. The them can be the sins within our own soul, the world, men even, the world's enticements, men's hostility, the devil, his host. There are more that be with us than there are with him because we have Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And if God be for us, then who can be against us? And he has given us the angelic host to serve us. And he's given us innumerable graces and he's given us ordinances and he's given us a whole host of other priceless privileges all furnished to us in order that we might be those who overcome. 
Thirdly, overcome but overcoming. So we started with this notion of that Gad was told that, that he would be overcome. And then secondly, we've, we've looked at this, this idea that nevertheless he would overcome at the last. And it's held together by this, this word but, that, we, that the two things go together, that there is overcome but overcoming. And these things have to be held together. And by that I mean, do not be surprised, nor be disheartened by the battle. We face great opposition. We are at war all our days. In many cases, there are, in human history, there are battles that wage on. Sometimes they last a year, five years, ten years. Sometimes they last a lot longer, even spanning generations. For us, we're in a cosmic war that, that far outstrips all of these other wars. And we're, we're at war all our days. We don't lay down our weapons ever, ever, ever until the end, right? We're buried with our weapons because we refuse to relinquish them all the way to the end. But we're at war against our own wishes. It's not what we would want to be the case. What we would desire to be the case is sinless perfection, which is not possible in this world. What we would desire to be the case is to be perfectly and blissfully at peace in our wholehearted obedience, worship, and devotion to the Lord without any assaulting us in that. But we're at war, though it may be against our wishes. So that's, that's a reality check for us. There's, there's also really a, a word of, of warning, I think, that has to come with, with that and with, with others, uh, with, with the other things we've heard. And that is to say, beware of applying this notion, hey, we're at war, we're always at war, we're going to be at war to the end of our days, we, we take a beating and battering at times and so on. Do not apply that to some form of carnal and careless security. Thinking to yourself, well, you know, the, the Bible says, as the minister has preached, you know, we we do get, you know, uh, a licking sometimes, and we, we do stumble, and we are, as it were, overcome at times, and thereby excuse yourself, or thereby entertain the arguments that come with those assaults and temptations. No, it is a call to watchfulness, not a call to carelessness, as you'll hear more. We're to, have a, we're to have a disposition of opposition to our opposition. We are never willing to say, I will claim peace with the enemy, sin and otherwise, and put myself at war with God. No, there is a spirit of opposition to our opposition. That for the Lord's people, it's not just a description of being in the fight, but they're actually engaged in the fray. Not just theoretically we're at war, but they're actually fighting in the midst of the war. The Christian is fighting actively against the enemies 
of our, of our souls. It is he that endures to the end that shall be saved, as the Bible says. So that calls for examination of our own souls, doesn't it? Are you or are you not of the Spirit of God? Do you have this description that is given to, to Gad and through Gad to the church at, at large? Are you, in fact, at war against sin and against Satan and against the world? Or is it that you are in league, capitulating, maybe even a slave to, to such an enemy? Are you one who has embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your strength, as your shield, as your salvation, as your deliverer? You know, the language of Scripture, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Are you one that is depending upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit, wrestling with the Lord? For his blessing. You remember that language we saw in First Chronicles 5? Describing the Gadites with the Reubens and Manasseh. They were trusting in the Lord. Right? They, were, they were waxing valiant because they looked to the Lord and were depending upon the Lord. I mean, which is it? Because the fact is this passage tells us that God is a terror to his enemies. And what that means is that if this evening you are one of his enemies, he is a terror to you. That in fact, to be outside the Lord Jesus Christ is to be fighting against God. That you're using what strength and breath and gifts that the Lord has given you, you're using those gifts in hostility against him, against his cause, against his interests. But what is this passage telling us? It's telling us that the enemies of the Son of God are going to be destroyed. They're going to be vanquished. That, that the Father's promised the Son that all of his enemies will be put under his feet. What does that mean? That means that if you are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, it means that his sword has been drawn. That his sword is actually been pointed at you. That, that it, it means that at last you will be overcome rather than overcoming. That the Lord will overcome you along with all of the rest of the world and worldly powers. I mean, you, you have that graphic language in, in um, the book of Revelation, you can apply this individually as we are doing here. You can also apply it generally. Nations that war against the king, Psalm 2, the Lord's going to smash them. Or institutions that war against the king. So you think of that language when it's speaking of the, uh, that, the whore of Babylon, Rome. And it says, Babylon is fallen, fallen, Babylon is fallen. And you have this description of the catastrophic destruction of Babylon. And there's smoke that is rising up uh, to heaven. That's a picture of what the Lord's going to do with, with Antichrist and, and so on. And so all of this sets, sets us on, 
on edge, doesn't it? And the word comes to you, whether you're young or old, you need to be clearing your own head that if you're outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no middle ground. That if you're not for him, you are indeed this evening sitting in your pew against him. And that he is against you in, in that condition. That you're under the wrath of God. And so what? You say, well, what do we do? You throw down your arms at his feet. That's what you do. And in the, in, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you be reconciled to him. Isn't this what gospel, gospel ministers are sent forth to, to do and to say? To beseech you in the name of God? To be reconciled unto him in his own name? That rather than being at war with, with God, that through the Lord Jesus Christ you would be brought to peace with God? Reconciled to him, received by him, by acknowledging that you are an enemy of God, that you have been at war with him, that you've defied and disobeyed him, that you have joined the spiritual coup in the hopeless attempt to dethrone the untoppable Savior, who is the King of Heaven, and that you are guilty as charged, that you are no match for him, that there is no soul since Adam that will ever, ever, ever be able to escape his grip or overthrow his verdict. To recognize that you cannot prosper without him. And so this evening to submit to him. To come by faith to him. You know, the Lord Jesus says that he who has ascended to heaven has received gifts for men, even the rebellious. He's received gifts, even for the likes of you. Rebels against him. And so the Lord comes this evening and he says, don't be so foolish. Come, the Lord says. He calls us to come to himself, to come to him rather than to wage war against him. To, to look at all of the overtures that he gives to us in the gospel saying, I'm willing and I'm able to receive you, to cleanse you, to pardon you, to, to, to remove guilt and pollution to bring you into saving fellowship with myself. And though you may feel this evening as if you were unable and you find yourself saying, it's true, I've been at war and it's inexcusable and he's undefeatable. And the only sensible thing is to come on gospel terms through the Lord Jesus Christ to him. But I'm not able, I can see it, but I can't do it. I can't get there. The Lord comes and says, though you are unable, he will help you. He will come and draw, draw you and turn you. That he is pleased, that as, as your heart swells up with a desire to turn to him, that he will aid and back and pull and draw and put wind in your sails and deliver you out of the morass of slavery to sin, domination of the devil, and bring you into the liberty of the Son of God himself. What a comfort this is to the believer. What a comfort it is overcome but overcoming. What a, what a comfort it is that we can cleave to him and should do so. That we are 
not inescapably beaten down and never will be forever beaten down. But that there is victory in him over sin and over Satan. Victory over death and over hell. And all of it has been secured by the word and oath of God himself. It has been secured by him. He has provided the victory. By the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, he destroyed him who had the power of death. By the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he came as victor over all of his enemies and ours. And that resurrection power is operative by the Spirit within the soul of every Christian. That same power that raised Christ from the dead. By the ascension of Jesus, where he rules and reigns with all power and authority in heaven and on earth for the benefit of his, his church. Through Christ's intercessions, we have victory. He has prayed for us. He told Peter, the devil desires to sift you. That's horrific that he, he wants to sift you. But Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And here is, here is Peter, and he's, he's brought up. He's overcome in the midst of those temptations, and yet he's delivered ultimately to overcoming and brought forward in the, in the strength of God. Well, here that same Savior is the same yesterday, today, and forever is seated in heaven, and his intercessions for his people secure their overcoming, their victory. So too do his covenant promises to us. So too does the pledge and down payment of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Go back and look at Romans chapter 8, verse 11 and 13. By the Spirit we overcome. Indeed, the battle is the Lord's. It's not ours. We feel in the throes and in the smoke and heat and, and noise of battle, we feel as if it is our battle. And the Lord says, no, it's the Lord's battle. And it's the Lord's victory. And we will overcome at the last. Often at the moment of crisis, breaking points. Finally at death and fully at the last day. That consolation energizes the believer to fight the good fight. Knowing that we overcome at the last. It's very different to go into a battle and being genuinely uncertain about the outcome. Not knowing which way it's going to go. That's very different than going into a battle knowing 110% that there's going to be victory. That the Lord has secured that victory. How often this comes out in the experience of God's people in various contexts. You know, one example would be from the days of Nehemiah, which is at the end of the Old Testament, um, the end of the Old Testament church. In Nehemiah chapter 3, in verse 17, there are these people that, um, that come, and um, I've given you, I've written down the wrong passage. Well, anyway, it's the passage where it speaks about um, 
the assaults that they're bringing against him. And they're saying, you know, we're going to do this thing and we're going to do that thing and you're not going to be able to, you know, stand against us. And maybe the same passage where it says, you know, a fox will, you know, go along your wall and fall down. The answer of Nehemiah there, I don't have the exact words in my head here, but the answer of Nehemiah is an appeal to God and to the fact that the Lord is the one who set about this work and it's the Lord who's going to finish this work and it'll be to the glory of God in the work, right? He rebuffs them. He, he battles on in the, the labor that the Lord had given him to. And this is what we're told. We're to endure hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. We're our soldiers, but it means enduring hardship and we have to endure hardship. It means keeping our eye on the Lord Jesus Christ. To be strong in the Lord. We often go out feeling or hoping to be strong in ourselves, but to be strong in the Lord, keeping close to him, drawing upon his grace and strength and his divine resources, consciously depending upon him. That's expressed in all sorts of ways, including prayer, where we're asking him and seeking him for the help that we need, knowing that he is Jehovah Nissi, that he is the Lord, our banner. Overcome, but overcoming. God has promised victory. Through God, the promise extends to the church at large. Old Testament and New Testament is interesting. We don't have time to explain what it means, but in that Revelation 7 passage, when it speaks about the sealing of the 12 tribes, there is Gad again. Not only is the name inscribed upon the gates of the new Jerusalem, but the 12,000 of Gad sealed as well. And I realize that that's referring not specifically to the tribe of, of Gad. It's being used um, symbolically. But you see the point nonetheless, right? There's a picture of a victory that is captured in that. And so as we come out of the backside of, of a communion season, the Lord lavishing his grace upon him, upon us, the Lord coming and the manifestations of his presence, feeding us with his word, the encouragements, the joys, the help that the Lord gives us, the call, as we heard on Monday night, to new obedience and to full consecration and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be guaranteed that in the, that in the, in the wake of all of that blessing, a troop will come out if it hasn't already come out, to meet you. A troop is coming. There's attack. And so the Lord comes to us to buoy us up and strengthen us with a word from heaven. Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at last. May the Lord be glorified through the victories that he secures for his people. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, we come in the name of our Savior, who is the captain of the Lord's host. He who is the victor. He who has vanquished all of his enemies. He who rules with all power. O oh Lord, we rejoice in him. Grant that we would find Christ to be our shield, our refuge, our strength, our strong tower. Fortify and strengthen us, O oh Lord. Deliver us out of every evil. Cause, O oh Lord, Satan to be put under our feet. Uh, give us the strength of thy spirit and grace. Enable us to wield the arsenal that's given in 
in the strength of, the, of thy Son. And we ask that it would be to the victory and praise and glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.